This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more. This week, it's the elements issue. We take a deep dive into the periodic table. Carol, it's turning 150 years old. They grow up so fast. We're taking you all back to chemistry class. We touch on everything from nitrogen cold brew coffee to helium and party balloons. First up, though, we got a preview of the issue with the editor who made this all possible. And with this very interesting, but I have to say probably challenging assignment, Jeremy Keene, he's the architect of all of it. He joins us now in New York City. All right, take us all the way back. (laughs) How did this come about? Uh, Spitballing, as many good things do. Yeah, last year we started talking about doing something like this. We wanted to do something that focused on metals, on some of the things that Bloomberg does really well. And uh, then we thought, well, why don't we do it around the periodic table? And then we found out that it was the 150th anniversary, and it just seemed like it had to happen. Exactly. I want to know the conversations around the newsroom. How many people were like, we're going to do the periodic table? And they're like, what? Wait, what? Well, we did say the commodities issue, the, you know, there's, (laughs) it's all part of the same package. So, yeah, of course, we were... And talk to us about kind of the conversations you had and kind of coming up with stories. Um, The head of the commodities team was our first stop, just kind of asking people to send ideas about what's going on in the world of precious metals, in in iron, in other areas, and sent out to just sort of our network of writers and said, like, hey, we're going to try to do the entire table. That means we need a lot of ideas. They don't need to be big. Some can be long. Some can be short. Some can be visual. Well, not silver and gold, though, right? Yeah. Well, we did, you know, we did silver and we had silver and gold in there. We had a photo editor, Jane Yeomans, who just loves this stuff. So she found some amazing photography to go with it. And it all just kind of took off from there. Well, and clearly there's a nexus here of economics and politics and finance Mm -hmm. and business. How did you sort of sort through that? I almost feel like there's a matrix. You start with the table, but then you sort of have to matrix over it, sort of how you tell these stories. Right. You know, what's going to be most important six months from now? And, you know, at the time we were discussing it, the helium shortage, everybody was talking about the party city balloons story. And I, I had many ideas sent to us and we decided, okay, well, we've got one. Like, how is this going to be resolved? That was the approach that we decided that we wanted to take. And um, you know, we had a writer who had an idea about uh, saying, like, you know, in Tanzania, the geology suggests that there should be helium reserves there. Can we get it out? Right. And so, you know, we got that story rolling. Well, and that story is a good one. Yeah. And we talked to the, the writer and the editor about that. I mean, that was a story of entrepreneurship and mm-hmm. politics yeah. and natural resources. Sources, uh, some characters. As you say, some real characters. Yeah, and then, you know, as it went along, there was some serendipity. We had uh, we had assigned a photo essay from Greenland, not knowing that suddenly Greenland and its abundant resources were going to become yeah. a hot political topic. And so we had the perfect story I ready lo- to go. I have to say, and I've said it when we were d- discussing that story, that it really explains the, why the president is so interested in Greenland. Yeah. In terms of the amount of rare earth minerals that are there and the yep. resources that are there, Absolutely. potentially, yeah. right? No, exactly. The they and so you know, if you wanted to learn about it, you you'd get to see it. But also because we had somebody there at the time, you hear a little bit about how this looked from right. from abroad and. Um, yeah, so, the, so that worked out really well. And then, you know, with a lot of the smaller ideas in it, we, we tried to prepare things that we knew could be fun, that we could apply to different elements, like the ones where there's not necessarily a business use, like right. thallium or thulium or some of these ones that, you know, you don't, you don't really know yeah. how they could be used in business. And we tried to suggest how they might be. 
What was the toughest one to sort of get your head around? Uh, oh boy. Um, I would say, you know, in some ways it was, uh, there were two. One was uranium because uh, it's such a powerful Mm -hmm. symbol of the table and yeah. there's the bomb, there's nuclear power, there's all these byproducts that, are, that, are, that kind of come out of the production of uranium. Um, so that was one of them and it, it took us quite a while to, to decide that we wanted to look at China and, mm -hmm. and its sort of nuclear reactor building um, because they're one of the only people, the only countries who are still really gung-ho to a degree about nuclear power. And the other is carbon. I mean, as you would expect, there's right. so many we could have looked at climate change, we could have looked at diamonds, we could have looked at, I mean, anything. Creation of everything, right? Well, and that's what we ended up doing, was yeah. just, like, looking at carbon and its special properties and, and how, especially over the past couple of hundred years in the era of industrial chemistry, how we've used it to become this material that can produce all these products around us. Right. I, I always think of that slogan, right, you know, living better through chemistry, and I do wonder if like, it went through one era mm -hmm. and if it's going to go through a different era today, that maybe we, we look at it very differently. That it went through the elements. hippie era, and now it's going through the Peter Coy era. <laughs> well, well, or, you know, yeah. very chemical, right, putting chemicals in everything. Right, and then maybe we think about it in you know cleaner fuel and cleaner energy and different types of building blocks. Well, and I think I think there's a lot of awareness now that we've been through this virtual area uh, era, all this excitement about Silicon Valley and yeah. all the the ideas and the things that we can kind of experience on our phones and that sort of thing. And people are starting to think more. I I think about the ethics of like. Mm -hmm. Where is the cobalt that goes into the battery right. from? Where is um, you know, solar panels, these are good. Where do the rare earths that we need to make them come from? And can they be, can we kind of resolve the ethical issues around them? Well, and in some stories, and I'm thinking about the osmium story, you know, you get yeah. into this notion of like diamonds, maybe they're not so cool. You know, I, I mean, love that, story. that is, so that was an amazing <laughs> sort of like twist that I did not see coming. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's you know, how do we ascribe value to these yeah. things? And diamonds is, to some degree, I mean, they're they're chemically really cool, but they're also a story about marketing. Yeah. Yes. And, and so we have this German institute that is like, well, osmium is is rare, and it's can be made beautiful, and let's get let's get on it. So we follow him while he tries to pitch his his osmium. That's Jeremy Keen, and I have to say, Carol, I love when an editor just owns it, you know. And this is a guy who. He really took a deep dive into all of these elements, literally and figuratively. Uh, really fun to catch up. And didn't end up with an element of his own, which I just think is not quite it's fair. It's not fair. Turns out the world is running out of helium. So what will all those party balloons do? I don't know. It's really a question for the ages. But helium certainly is in many more parts of our lives yes. than probably we even realize. Jeff Muskis is here overseeing all of our technology coverage in the magazine. The story of helium, it's kind of complicated. I had no idea. Yeah, more so than uh, than certainly we imagined when we first started getting uh, a handful and then a couple dozen of helium pitches in for this elements issue. Yeah, I feel like people have been talking about this for a few years that we're kind of, you know, there's, there's a shortage of helium. Is there a shortage of helium? Uh, the short answer is, yeah, within the, the sites that we know about, um, pretty much all the the helium that's available to us on Earth so far comes from about a dozen uh, fields and about half of it from just the U.S. and Qatar. So um, when there's an interruption in supply, uh, as there was, for example, uh, during the, the Qatar blockade recently, uh, 
prices spike dramatically. Uh, it's become a, a bigger problem as uh, the U.S. government has wound down its supply of, of helium reserves, which had been uh, kind of a thing dating to the early 20th century, but uh, well, went away at the end. And who knew that we actually had a bunch of reserves? Why did the government initially have those reserves? Well, it, it, it turns out that uh, uh, in the, the first half of the 20th century, actually in the, as, as early as the late 19th, the uh, the government was betting pretty heavily on the future being ruled by airships. Yeah. Right. And Hindenburg uh, sort of put an end Changed to that, yeah. exactly. all of that. Well, and one of the things you point out, which I had no idea, among the key uses for helium today, arc welding, chromatography, medical lasers, optical fiber, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Right. And space travel. Space travel certainly is something that's been on the minds of all of us, not just Elon Musk. Over the past few years, it is the billionaire's favorite pastime. Right. It feels like this is something that arguably could be even more important going forward, so this is that much more worrisome, it feels like. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, in fact, NASA was the big reason for the, the feds to hold on to their store of helium for most of the latter half of the 20th century, and then uh, it was in the 90s that uh, the Congress said, well, the private sector should be able to handle this, uh, as well as the, the uh, public sector's <laughs> massive subsidies, so uh, imposed a sort of winding down process on, on the federal stores, which you know, then left the helium market with, with few controls when prices started jack, jacking up. All right, so Jeff, that's kind of your backdrop here, right, in terms of what's going on with helium. Tell us about the two individuals that are, are profiled in this story, this Australian geologist, right, who maybe have found a great well, if you will, of helium, and it also could be um, very dramatic in terms of changing the country where it is. Yeah, Josh Blewett and, and Thomas Abram James, uh, the guys who founded this company, Helium One, uh, had, had been, yeah, former roommates in, uh, in Australia. On a road trip. And That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. So uh, one invited the other along to, to come see where he'd been uh, hunting for, for gold claims in Tanzania. And um, the, the other guy found a, uh, a book in the, a guidebook in the back of the, the truck while they were uh, tooling around that, that seemed to suggest that uh, parts of Tanzania had uh, just off the charts levels of helium concentration. This is something that mining companies had really kind of ignored forever because um, helium has been sort of a byproduct of a more profitable natural gas claims, for example. Um, and it's, uh, although it's the second most abundant element in the universe, it's hard to keep on Earth. It tends to fly out into space unless it's contained. And so companies, for the most part, have been happy just to let it do that. Right. And so how hard is this project? Because, you know, mining for gold, people have known how to do that right. for time immemorial. Certainly you go back to the 49ers out in California. Yeah. But this is a little tricky. Trickier. Yeah, it's definitely more complicated. Uh, um, among other things, there uh, the, the projects that are working on uh, mining helium for the first time, sort of for its own sake, have to deal with uh, both trying to sort of separate it out from the more right. profitable materials and figure out how to effectively contain it in, in uh, relatively small packages on the ground. Because one of the things that I learned from this story was this idea of even once you identify where it is, you're not even sure if ultimately what's there is... I guess, mineable and usable, right? Yeah, it's sort of hard to tell unless you've already put a fair amount of money in. All right, so let's talk about, though, this, these, these two individuals, these two scientists have essentially maybe unearthed um, a helium area, right, that might produce a lot, but they haven't quite pulled it out yet. 
That's right. Yeah, uh, by most standards, their claim appears to be kind of off the charts. Uh, but there are other uh, companies in this in this space trying to work in the same direction. So far, uh, they've mostly been hamstrung by uh, the upfront investment involved and regional instability. The, right, uh, and, and that regional that. instability yeah. piece is really important because you mentioned, uh, you know, Cutter in the United States. I mean, that's a fraught situation to begin with. But then you sort of feather in this clearly developing market, political instability, maybe some questions around who has the rights, who ultimately has the ability to to do all this. What happens next? Right. The the Helium One guys like to say that, uh, you know, the the, um, royalties, even just alone that are at stake in this, in the claims that they've identified, uh, you know, could add, uh, you know, an order of magnitude to to Tanzania's economy. And that's Um, that's what I find interesting. I mean, here's a developing, you know, market economy that could certainly benefit big time if indeed this turns out. Right, but uh, and allowed and is allowed. Right, as, as you guys are suggesting. I mean, the the even the the kinds of gold claims that uh, uh, Abraham James was working on a few years ago are, are uh, you know have been subject to a lot of blowback in the last uh, uh, year or so, uh, and that's complicated their efforts to get investment to get on the ground with this stuff. What's the time frame for this, from your sense? Uh, I mean, the, you know, the the competing uh, startups in the space say that they're, you know, they're looking at the next couple of years to uh, to really get going on the ground. Uh, it's it's a little hard to tell. You know, we've it's the kind of thing we've been hearing about for a few years now. Is so it a crisis? In the meantime, though? you're like, just going to be blowing up balloons, <laughs> and they're not going to you know, go up. But is it a crisis? Like it isn't like something that we talk about in the headlines a lot. But I do wonder, like as you did that list of you know scientific uses or industrial uses, space uses, and so on and so. Forth, it's important that we have access to it. Yeah, it's uh, helium beyond uh, uh, being an existential crisis for Party City. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the gas has become essential for everything from the Large Hadron yeah. Collider to every MRI machine. So uh, it's the kind of thing that, you know, as prices have not just crept up but, but leapt up, you know, 100%, 150%, 300% uh, inside, you know, a decade or 20 years, that's the kind of thing that, uh, that everybody should be more worried about. That's Jeff Muskis, who edited the story. And what's interesting is helium, I think we just take it all for granted. Totally. Well, I mean, I know, you know, you like to like use a little, make your voice high and all those different <laughs> all the things. time, all the time. It's sort of a thing with you. Uh, but yeah, it's a party city problem, but it's much bigger than that. And I candidly had no idea there was such a shortage. And this story could have implications for Tanzania, which I think is just, you know, takes it on a whole other scale. So the U.S.-China trade war was front and center once again this week. And in the elements issue, a story on what might become a new front in that trade war. In fact, it's actually one of several stories where we take a look at rare earth minerals. Let's bring in editor Jillian Goodman. This is a fascinating story. And I said to you before we got started, now I really kind of understand why President Trump has said, I'm on Greenland. Exactly. Yeah, it's full of these elements called uh, the rare earth minerals. It's, I believe, 57 to 68 on the peri- periodic table, plus mm-hmm. scandium and uh, uh, yttrium, I believe. And so these are minerals that uh, are elements, rather, that become a part of things like uh, TV screens, um, uh, heavy cell duty phones. Ma- cell phones, heavy duty magnets that are used in military applications. And so they're really, really important and of growing importance in global trade. And China has a lot of them. And China <laughs> controls about 70% of the global supply. So yeah, it's it's a big, 
big, important thing. Well, you guys, and in this really kind of gorgeous um, photo essay, take us to Greenland. I mean, it's a pretty hostile territory, right? I mean, at least as far as the the elements go, you know, sort of in terms of weather, you know, it's covered in ice, it's mountainous, it's not terribly populated. So it is a hard place to uh, develop a mining operation. All right, but there's a lot of minerals there, rare earth minerals minerals in particular. So let's talk about it. Denmark, right, claims this territory as their own at this point. Mm-hmm. And it has since the early 18th century. Okay. Yeah. And so what's going on here in terms of developing some of the rare earth minerals that are there? What do the locals say about it? Well, from the Greenland perspective, it's very important to them uh, to develop uh, these mining operations because they've been trying to become independent from Denmark for a long time. They achieved a, a big step in that in 2008. They passed a referendum that sort of devolved more powers from Greenland uh, excuse me, from Denmark to Greenland. Um, and now, you know, they need to develop the economy, which is right now really agricultural, pretty small. And of course, you know, since there's so much international interest in these rare earth uh, metals, that's a big part of their plan. Okay, but it hasn't happened so far. It has not happened so far. Development has been kind of slow because of that hostile environment we're talking about. But as international uh, attention picks up, you know, the momentum behind it, the interest in it picks up, that might accelerate. What I also thought was interesting that actually China China already has some investment there, correct? Yes, they do. And, right. and the U.S., the U.S. Geological Survey has been on the ground for months. You know, this sort of announcement by President Trump or, or uh, admission by President Trump that he was interested in buying Greenland came as a surprise to a lot of people, but they've been sort of laying the it groundwork for a little while. It did kind of like an outlier. It didn't quite make some sense. And yet we've had a diplomatic mission there since mm-hmm. May, and the U.S. Geological Survey has been on the ground. So it's, you know, it's been in the works. Jillian, let's talk about the pictures, because it is a photo essay, right? And you guys, you know, uh, sent a photographer there mm-hmm. and got a bunch of pictures. You look at the wilderness and you you do see how it's a tough territory in terms of developing. Uh, you show pictures of some of the rare earth minerals that mm-hmm. are there. I mean, the potential, it seems like that there is an awful lot. Exactly. It's it's a, a ton of potential. One of the images we have is a, a, a dusk image where we have these rocks that are sort of glowing fluorescent under black Gorgeous. light. And this is, you know, this mineral that we're seeing that's glowing in the rocks sort of indicates the presence of rare earth metals. And you can see that a lot of them are glowing. So you can see, you know, visually there's a lot of potential for mining exploration. There. What's interesting, too, is there's been some mining done there in the past, too, right? But they've been kind of abandoned. Right. So Denmark in the late 80s, 80s banned uranium mining uh, as part of a nuclear non-proliferation uh, action, and that was recently overturned in 2013. But that mining operation still hasn't really gotten started again. And there's one town in particular, right, in Greenland that everybody's focusing on, I'm, where it's Narsak, right? It's Narsak, yeah. And there are a lot of the area around Narsak is particularly rich in these minerals. What's fascinating, you guys are foc- you know often working on stories, you know, weighing ahead. I mean, you've been working on this for a while, yeah. and it, you know, just what over the last couple of weeks now, we're all talking about Greenland. Yeah. President Trump and his interest in it. It really fell into our laps, which is kind of nice what do you th- when that happens. What do you think in terms of our audience and our you know, viewers and our listeners, uh, the takeaway from this in terms well, of mean, your reporting? As you really say, it does sort of bring the global interest in Greenland and the global interest in these metals into perspective. I mean, the extent to which they're used, the extent to which they're found in Greenland and sort of all of the various international claims kind of brings it all together. Right. It does bring it all together. And it's also a reminder and just, you know, talk about this a little bit more because in this issue, and I think rightfully so, you guys talk about rare earth minerals several times. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are so important in terms of developing everything, building everything, industry, commerce, 
electronics, you know, you, we talked about cell phones and TV, TVs earlier. I mean, the number of applications for these minerals is just huge. And that's Jillian Goodman, our politics editor. And just a reminder, Elements, they're political, more so when it comes to Greenland. I love the story because I feel like it finally puts into perspective why President Trump is so interested in Greenland. It is about those rare earth minerals, just all of those resources that can be found in that territory. Economics, politics, they all come together elementally. Who knew that in the elements issue there would be a coffee story thanks to a little old nitrogen? Well, food editor Kate Crater knew she is all things wining and dining, culture and cuisine. Um, I love this story, right? Like here we have the periodic table of elements, and there's a food. There's, there's actually probably lots of food stories out of it, right? First of all, where was this Business Week issue when I was in high school? <laughs> I have to say, to get like, chemistry? to get through chemistry, this has so just true. made every element come alive for me. It's so exciting to hear about. I'm not even sure what element it is, but like, I spy the thing about like the kind of wax that you use on your skis, right? And there's like, no spoiler alert. There's this fantastic image of like a chlorophyll chicken coming up. Like, that people will get to see. So this whole in the magazine. In the magazine, yeah. So it's really given me this whole it's made like all these elements come alive in a way that's so that's so fun. And nitrogen. Well talk to us about this because you know you get into this story about co- coffee. Like I feel like we do so much to coffee already, but Apparently, there's been more thanks to elements. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, the thing about the thing about coffee is you think there's like so much people are like, oh my gosh, I hacked my coffee today and I did this and it's unicorn, it's unicorn colored, it's pumpkin flavored. It's there's so many things that you think are happening to coffee, but fundamentally, coffee is just beans. It's just beans that have been picked and roasted and brewed in hot or cold water. Like there's not that much you can do historically, to change a cup of coffee. And yet? And yet, nitrogen, ta-da-da-da, here comes nitrogen. And nitrogen, I mean, some people certainly know it from beer, but what it does, if you pump um, nitrogen gas, which is like, has no color and no odor, if you pump it in, it creates these tiny little bubble, bubbles, soft little bubbles, right. and it gives it like a creamy flavor and an ever so slight sweetness. Different though, Kate, than what we get off like a cappuccino machine? Yeah, it's well different. that's not, yeah, I think like hot coffee, I don't, it, it would, it, it's not strong enough, I think, for yeah. hot coffee, nor do you, I think the pressure of the boiling water adds a certain texture of its own, and then you have milk, and that's like creaminess. But for a nitro cold brew, there's generally not milk in it. You don't have to add milk. More spoiler alert coming up in a minute, but um, <laughs> but you um, nitrogen adds, you know, it's coming out of a tap the way you right. see some beers come out of a tap, and there's like this gentle little cascade of bubbles that you see, and it will form a foam on the top. Like a beer, right? Like a beer, yeah, a good, a good nitro brew. Um, coffee will look like a beer. And it also, as you write, a little bit of flavor, right? Some sweetness? A very slight sweetness, yeah. The bubbles, um, in a way that I can't explain, create like the create the sense of a little soft sweetness. This is when I like go, okay, so where was it that somebody was sitting around with their cup of coffee or their cup of iced coffee or something and said, oh, wait, wait, we can do something different. Like, where did this come from? Well, you know what? If you, if I, if I gave you a multiple choice quiz, since I keep thinking about high school now, um, if I said, did this, would this maybe have started in Austin or Queens or Seattle, what would you say? I would say Seattle. Well, you would be close. <laughs> but I'd be <laughs> wrong. It, yeah. It like it blew up and exploded in Seattle. But and you know, there's different there's varying right. urban theories about this. And in fact, one the, according to one source, it actually might have started in Queens as an experiment, I think with like a beer keg that they attached to coffee or something. But um, 
but they supposedly the most popular theory is that it started in Austin around okay. 2012, and someone who with a little too much time probably overcaffeinated <laughs> hacked. Um, hacked, like took his nitrous oxide, took his nitro tap and um, put it with coffee and the result captivated everybody. Well, let's talk about this. So there's a couple of companies that are, are pretty big players and mm-hmm. they're actually at, one of them is out west, right? In Portland, mm-hmm. Oregon. Talk to us about Stumptown. Yeah. So Stumptown, exactly. Stumptown, you know, I mean, Seattle, everyone thinks of Seattle as yeah. the coffee capital, but Stumptown has been a major player in, um, in this coffee scene, especially like the ready to drink coffee scene coffee scene, which is like $4.1 billion now. It's really, really come up in a big way. And so um, and so, Stumptown was also an early adapter to this. And they started, they started playing around with kegs and nitrogen, and they had it on tap. And then by 2015, I think they introduced their first cans. And what's really cool about them is they have, they've created these cans that have like a little tiny widget in the bottom right. that you put nitrogen in, and through like force of nature, when when you pop open your can, the nitrogen, like the pressure from the gas, explodes. And so when you pour it out, you do get that satisfying cascade of like bubbles and coffee and everything. I love that it's built right in the can. Do you drink it? Like, I don't think I've ever had it. Is that crazy? Have you, do you yeah. drink it? Mm-hmm. Do you like it? Yeah. Well, you know what? I like it because when it comes down to it, even though I try and like fake that I'm like the biggest coffee head, in fact, I'm not. And I also don't have the biggest appetite for things that are really bitter or sour. Right. And nitrogen tends to soften the, I mean, in the way that it sweetens it a little bit, it tends to soften the acidic overtones. So, so I easier, think it's really good. A little bit easier on I'm going to bring you one. Yeah, I'm going to bring you one. It's really, <laughs> and it's also so easy to drink. We're, um, I actually want to work on a story about the way different people across the country drink coffee, but apparently in Colorado, everyone's like, it's such a beer culture and people are so used to drinking things out of cans. And so oh. that they have the biggest can coffee consumption, according to one coffee company. But it's fascinating. So it's really caught on. It's really popular for millennials because you don't have to even wait for someone to pour your cup of coffee. Just Basically, it, you, right? grab, you grab your can. Talk to us about another player, um, La Colombe, is it? Coffee Cologne, Roasters? Yeah. And, and they add in some oxygen. So you and I were talking about diving before we got mm-hmm. in. So nitrogen, oxygen, is that like nitrox, like in terms of diving? Um, NO2, Similar, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, they, um, so they, when I asked them if they were doing nitrogen, coffee, they're like, no, actually we add nitrous oxide. So they think the bubbles, and pe- other people will know nitrous oxide um, from laughing gas, you know, maybe if you w- went to that kind of dentist <laughs> or whipped cream. I did, I did. Okay. <laughs> He's the most popular dentist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, or like whipped cream, if you've ever gotten a little yes. crazy with a can of whipped cream, that the thing that gives the, the thing that gives the cream texture and flavor and animates it is nitrous oxide. And so so La Colombe was like, why stop at nitrogen? Let's add nitrous, you know, let's add oxygen yeah. too, which is the next element on the periodic table, by the way. So um, so they have also um, created some cans um, that I'm not sure they have a little widget in it, but their, their coffee, if we, and we'll do, let's do a side by side. And try but, it out. Um, and try it out. But you can see those bubbles last a little bit longer. I think they're not as soft. You know, like if you have Stumptown, it really, like you would never know there's anything there animating right. it, making it better. But 
when you have, I think when you have the Stumptown one, you really get the sense of like a slight more texture. I feel like we can't talk about coffee without talking about Starbucks. I mean, they're doing this, right? <laughs> you know they are. <laughs> they were, yeah, they're not, um, they weren't the front, like really, um, Stumptown came in really early in terms of the big brands, but of course Starbucks sees what's happening in the coffee yeah. scene. And so they have been adapting, of course, like they've grabbed on to the Nitro Cold Brew because they want to be all coffee things to all people. And what's funny about this, so Stumptown is all things to all, is all coffee things to all people. And so, of course, they've gotten into the Nitro Coffee game. And they announced that by the end of the year, their Nitro Coffee would be available across the country, which to me in 2019 seems a little late since um, since Stumptown, it's already like a two, it already makes $2 million for Stumptown. Their, um, their Nitro Coffee is their best seller, they say, or their fastest growing seller. Um, so what, what was funny about reporting this is we were, of course, looking to see what Starbucks was doing in the right. Nitro Coffee scene. And we were like, well, they have some Nitro cold brews coming. They've just announced some flavors, but no sign of pumpkin spice yet. And in, within like days, and literally this story turned around in like pretty quickly, right. within days, um, Starbucks announced that they have a pumpkin cream cold brew coming. In fact, I think it's already out there now. So Kate Crater, this is what's fun about this issue is that when you look at the table of elements, I mean, it invades so much of our life from really serious stuff to, you know, making a better cup of coffee, cold cup of coffee. Well, I think that's very serious stuff for a lot of people. This is better <laughs> yes. caffeination through chemistry. I really love it. And I love Kate Crater. I'll be honest. So this story feels to me like the one that might lend itself to a movie. Someday Netflix or an Amazon series about the scientist's obsession that led to today's digital world. With us to set the scene, editor Dan Ferrara. I do feel like, right? I feel like we could do a story about, well, you guys did do a story about this right. scientist. Right, a little obsession. Who is Gordon Teal? So he was a uh, genius, of course, uh, who, whose obsession was germanium, which was used in some of the early semiconductors. What is germanium? Uh, it's a metal. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So anyway, so it's important, right? Right. It's, 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 it's germanium and silicon are, are the two primary things from which semiconductors are made. Right. He was obsessed with germanium, and while other people were working on silicon, he was trying to say, no, 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 germanium is the stuff. And his particular passion was, was creating a form of germanium that was of such incredibly high quality and purity. Well, and he was working at Bell Labs, right? He was working at Bell Labs. Perfect place to be doing this. Yep. Although he had to really kind of push his case, make his case. People, they were like, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, other geniuses at Bell Labs created created the semiconductor yeah. and the transistor. And he was like trying to say, use some germanium. This stuff is awesome. Just because he loved it. Uh, eventually, they came around his way of thinking and and, a, and they made a germanium transistor, which was super important. Ultimately, he was then involved at Texas Instruments in the creation of the first silicon transistor, which was, of course, the thing we're talking about is changing everything. Right. Dan, what I love about this story is right, we take for granted like our cell phones and everything, uh, and there's so much that goes into this, but this is really the building blocks of where right. we are today. Right. And if you see the images in the story, this stuff is really simple. Like the, the things that they're building in labs are very, they, they look like science projects, and they are just at the highest possible level. So, you know, in doing this story, working with the reporter, editing it, I mean, what is it that struck out for you? Because I feel like this is not an individual that we talk about. It's not one of those scientists that everybody right. is a household name. This was somebody who was working behind the scenes, but what he did was incredibly right. dramatic. Right, I, and I think, I think people who know 
the history of the technology. They, they in fact, do know his name. You and I, you and right. I, he's just below that level where he's a household name. But his contribution was was really very significant. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that contribution because, as I said, you know, he was going to Bell Labs and saying, like, let's do this, let's do this, mm -hmm. like, this makes sense. But they were kind of just pushing off to the side. And then finally, they're like, all right, go work on it. But he had to work in a lab. I think, as the writer reports, it's kind of cloak and dagger. He had to right. do it in off hours, right. like in the middle of the night, clean up the lab before he left. Talk to us a little bit about that process. Right. So, like I said, he was obsessed with the use of germanium well. His, the people who were slightly elevated above him, slightly higher prestige, were working with silicon. And he was like, you guys are missing it. It really ought to be using germanium. And, they, and Bell and his superiors allowed him to basically shift his work schedule so that he worked at overnight to work on, on purifying the germanium crystal. And then there was a kind of an aha moment at the end where he got it right. And they said, OK, you, were, you, can, come, you can come back to work in the daytime now, and we're going to use this product. And, and, and it really did change, change the company's approach. Well, they ended up, right, I think, having a dedicated lab for growing those right. crystals in particular. Right. So think, think of that. I mean, like, what is it like to grow germanium crystals for a living? That's, yeah. Uh, it's an odd kind of thing to perfect, but, but that was his passion. There's a fun moment, too. Uh, as you said, he eventually, I think it was, what, uh, the end of 1952, he left, and he went to Texas Instruments, right. and, and uh, you know, they were focusing on, focusing on um, transistor technology. Talk right. to us a little bit about his time there. Right. So at, at, at Bell, it, it, at, at Bell they, they had been doing germanium, uh, but it became evident uh, that silicon would be a superior product for certain kinds of applications. I think specifically it was for applications that produced a lot of heat, as in military applications. Right. Don't forget, this was during and just following World War II. So there was a shift to silicon, and uh, he did that work Despite his passion for germanium, he, he led in the shift to silicon and the, the, the shift to the production of the early silicon transistors at, at TI, which became just a big phenomenon. There's, this, there's an anecdote in the story about, about him wowing the crowd by pulling a silicon transistor from his pocket, because that's the kind of thing that wows that kind of crowd. Right. Right, well, because everybody was like, okay, we're going to do this. Right, and eventually. Like, well, as a matter of fact, I got right. one right here. Eventually, we're going to do silicon transistors, and he says, eventually is now. Well, and what's interesting is, and as I think, I feel like with any kind of scientist, you know, the work that they do in the past and the work that he did on germanium helped him in terms of what he was able to do at TI, right? He was kind right. of in, in an advanced level or at an advanced level right. because yeah. of what he had learned. He was all about purifying, making perfect crystals, right? And so he, he switched materials, but. Well, he was a germanium man. He was a germanium man. But I also think it just reminds you that these people, you know, these individuals who catch on to something, right, in science or, you know, looking at the periodic table and saying, wait, we can do something with some, you know, something has brought us, just think about what it has brought yeah. us to where we are today. What's also fascinating is that if you think about Bell Labs in the 1940s, <laughs> absolutely full of geniuses, full of amazing people who are collaborating or in some instances not getting along and yeah. you know there's a lot of very smart people all working together that bring us to where we are now. Right, right. and sometimes that competition creates exactly you know yeah. some dramatic outcomes. Um, I love this story, it's really fun and like I said I feel like we could tell the story uh, of this individual in a, in a movie or some kind of series. Yeah, yeah. Dad, thanks so much for All right, thanks Carol. Much appreciated. All right, bye-bye. The next story is about one of the rarest elements on the planet and one man's bet that the elements will create an investment market more lucrative and renowned than the diamond industry. Who'd have thought?
I have to say, I really liked this story in part because I feel like one of our greatest writers of characters here at Bloomberg Business Week is Austin Carr. He's here with us in New York City. We're talking about Osmium, and I feel like the Oz in this, uh, there's a wizard. Just That's a correct, note, yeah. everybody, we had to help Jason with the pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I mean, th- this is a very rare element. I don't know how much you know the periodic table if you've memorized it. I certainly hadn't known about it prior to <laughs> He talks for, about it all the time. All the time, I know. I'm, I'm a big fan of Osmium, too. But um, yeah, th- there is a wizard behind this story, which is this uh, sort of crazy German guy named Ingo Wolf. Uh, right there, it's perfect. I know, yeah. with that name. I thought it was a fake name at the beginning. But um, yeah, no, he, he's been working working for the past couple of years about basically what we describe as alchemizing this uh, very rare, uh, one of the rarest, uh, not just elements, but precious metals on Earth, uh, and trying to make it in sort of the next generation diamond. I don't know if you guys are, what, what wedding bands or rings or if, what, what you guys wear, but um, I, I just, I, hopefully if you're wearing any diamonds, he thinks that market's going to go kaput in the next couple of years, and his his bet is to replace it with osmium. He must be talking to my husband, too. He's like, they're not worth anything. Yeah, can um, we move on to yeah, osmium then? Exactly, now? exactly. Well, for First of all, where did you go to talk with this guy? So we actually met up in Reno, Nevada, which, of course, is a very classy place. And it, it was at a casino where they were having the International Precious Metals Conference. I don't know if you guys went last year. Oh, or yeah. You're going now. I mean, it's, it's a hoot. And this is a really crazy gathering of, of just all these very sort of opaque industries coming together to talk about the future of their industry. So they talk about gold and silver and platinum and palladium. But then you have crazy guys like this Ingo Wolf there pitching this sort of, hey, this is going to disrupt the market. Here's why you need to know about osmium. And the funny thing is, you know, it's one thing for us not to know about osmium, but nobody at this conference knew about osmium. Right. So this is a really sort of innovative idea to sort of take this element that is actually toxic, extremely toxic by nature, which we can talk about, and, and crystallize it to turn it into something that you'd want to wear on your face fingers or as a necklace or if an investor you'd want to buy a disc of the stuff and hide in a safe for a few years before it goes up in value. The hiding it in the safe leads me to a whole series of questions around how this guy operates because the whole tone of this at least from the beginning is this sort of like bring it in keep your voice down I'm going to tell you some things that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Who is he? So he, so he has a very unique past. He describes himself as a uh, everything from a rockabilly singer to a serial entrepreneur um, to someone who actually has uh, started 14 ventures, everything from an electric car company to an online TV company. Um, he, he grew up uh, in, uh, in Germany uh, and had this long career in the business space, but eventually got interested in commodities, uh, got involved in sort of gold mining for a bit. And then at randomly in 2013, at a commodities conference in Europe, he met this uh, secret, we can't name him, we promised that we wouldn't name him, this this guy who uh, developed this crystallization process to turn raw osmium, which can cause blindness, lung damage, to the point of what would be described as uh, dry, uh, on-land drowning. Uh, it can stain right. your corneas black uh, so that you can't see anymore. It's incredibly toxic. It's incre- highly, highly, highly toxic. And so taking that uh, and crystallizing it uh, rendering it harmless and then turning it into something that's incredibly shiny. Mirror gems. Oh my God. Mirror gems. I mean, if you see these things in part, they do have this very uh, bluish, beautiful finish to them. uh, And they do sparkle more than diamonds. At the same time, you just have to balance their cost, uh, whether this is a long-term investment. I mean, there was only 38 kilograms of osmium imported to the U.S. all last year. Compare that to 60,000 kilograms of platinum. But why hasn't somebody else, I don't know, years ago, like discovered this and 
said, hey, this is this could be really cool. This could be a big market here. I think that was one of the questions that I went to. Why, why you guys? And I, it's just because this chemist that he's working with, who is based out of Switzerland, they won't tell me where he, he actually operates. I did connect with him, but on the condition I wouldn't name him in the Probably story. Probably the same person who created Bitcoin. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. just kidding. Well, actually, speaking of that, they do have an Osmium, a bit, of course. Oh, of course. Of course. There's always a cryptocurrency, but uh, that completed its ICO in July. And so far as I know, I think it went on to second trading markets last week and it doubled in value. So, okay, okay. Yeah. The context here, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, or the comparison is really with diamonds. And I, I just want to read this part of your story because sure. it really helped set it up. To hear Wolf describe it, diamonds are overhyped gemstones. Diamonds are rare? No. Geologists estimate there are trillions of tons of diamonds buried beneath the Earth's surface. Diamonds are forever? No. They can burn. Diamonds are unique? Not. No. The rapid rise of synthetic diamonds, which are ethically grown in labs, are dramatically cheaper than their natural counparts. So he really has knocked down, sorry, right. to your hands, like no, no. the well, entire diamond market. Well, talk about De Beers, right, and how you know, brilliant they were, no pun intended, in terms of creating a marketing machine, right, right to get everyone to buy diamonds. And I think that's one of the, the compelling uh, parts of this. The, the subsidiary for Berkshire Hathaway that focused on precious metals, the CMO of that company basically told me, you can't just take rocks in the earth, and if they're shiny, throw them in, in jewelry and, and say, hey, look how cool this is. Right. You have to develop an emotional marketing story. Yeah. It wasn't 100 years ago that De Beers started started to actually sell this idea of an engagement ring. It's something that's is synonymous with love and commitment. That didn't exist. You know, right. uh, this was something that they had to develop through marketing. Right. And so the idea is you have to do that with osmium at a certain point. It's, it's, you know, it's one thing to have their, the natural element of, oh, it's harder. It's, it has higher abrasion resistance. It's shinier. Uh, it, it doesn't burn as, as uh, it's, it's harder to burn than a diamond. But you actually have to sell it as, hey, this is something that, that, that symbolizes my love to you. And that's how you're going to create it from Yes, a rock into something that is, uh, uh, you know, a, a long-term symbol of love. I love that you brought up Berkshire Hathaway, their precious yeah. metal subsidiary. I mean, they are looking into this. That's what I, I was told. Uh, yeah, Mark Hanna, their CMO, uh, just told me that, you know, I, I was really, he was really impressed with the talk that this guy Ingo Wolf gave in Reno and that he ordered his procurement team to look into it. So he, he's very curious. Other people, though, I w- should say, were skeptical. We talked to some ge- ge- a geochemistry professor uh, who, who was concerned about the claims that they make about talk and whether it's completely immune for humans. Yeah. What's your take on Ingo Wolf? Because you wrote, it's hard at times to determine how seriously to take Wolf. This guy's in an over, over-the-top character. I mean, th- there's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, one of the things that we write in the story, uh, which is that he, he told me he likes to only shower by water skiing these yep. days. You know, he is this rockabilly singer <laughs> that's also, uh, for a lead singer of this German uh, group that's called the Race Cats, but uh, he's also a lab rat. And it, it's sort of balancing the different yeah. wild... Uh, bold claims that he made with the reality of the situation is this is going to take a long time to actually convince consumers to buy this stuff, to convince investors this is a long-term liquid investment. And so we'll see. I mean, right. I, I was, uh, at times, I, I was taken by him. At the same time, uh, if I proposed to my girlfriend, will I buy osmium in that ring? I, I don't know. It's TBD. You yeah. may just go uh, just straight diamond. But who knows? <laughs> who knows? It could happen. Could be well, onto something. Christmas time's coming up. <laughs> You're right. All right. Austin Carr, great story. Thank, Thank you. you so much. You may never look at your salt shaker the same way again thanks to people like ben jacobson who after a detour through silicon valley jason he turned his sights on salt this is one of my favorite mm-hmm. pieces yeah. in this issue in part because it breaks it down literally we're all about the elements yes. but also <laughs> through a very interesting character andrew zaleski is here with us he's our character watcher in this piece he joins us from washington so andrew uh help us understand how'd you find this guy how did i find this guy <laughs> some very clever google searching i suppose <laughs> i love google uh, 
and then he, it just sort of came up in on on sort of blog after blog and site after site a variety of people chefs cooks food reviewers were all talking about Jacobson salt and I figured okay let me go let me go see what's going on with him all right, so let's talk about Ben Jacobson. Who is he? Tell us about the salt he makes, because uh, there's some interesting things, oyster pans, all this kind of cool stuff involved. Right. Right, so, so Ben runs his own salt operation on the, the coast of Oregon. He basically pumps in a lot of seawater from a bay called Neatarts Bay, and then through a series of different processes, evaporation, boiling, dehydrating, he makes his own flaky sea salt. And this is kind of what he what he does now and what he has done for almost the last 10 years after he sort of bounced around some tech companies and then left Silicon Valley. Why salt? I mean, <laughs> it, it, there's, a, there's a great origin story here. Silicon Valley so, to salt. Yeah, because it, that's not a natural uh, straight line. No, it's not. He was, he was living in Europe at the time. He was going to business school. He has some extended family there. And I guess... At one point, he was he was making a dinner of sort of like canned mackerel and arugula, just whatever he could find cheaply at the store. And his girlfriend at the time handed him some Maldon sea salt, and he put that on his meal. And he said it was it was one of the best meals he ever had, simply because of the salt. And then when he came back to the states, he started looking around for other brands of sea salt, and he just couldn't find anything aside from Maldon. So then he embarked on trying to make his own salt and. I think his first attempt was he, he bought one of those inflatable kiddie pools. You might buy it like a Target or a Walmart, filled it up with some seawater and just plunked it in his backyard. And after a month, it was, well, it was not salt. It was still seawater in yeah, the kiddie pool. Yeah, I was just doing that the other day. But what's interesting <laughs> is, and you put these stats in, in your story, the global market for gourmet salt, $1.1 billion in 26, expected to grow to $1.5 billion in the next decade. I mean, we're talking about a pretty decent market. It's only growing. There's this kind of interesting evolution of it. You know, many people didn't really think too much about, about sea salt, but I, I spoke with Dan Souza for the article, too, and, and he's on the PBS show America's Test Kitchen. Uh, and he was sort of telling me about how over the last 10 years, roughly, more and more chefs at restaurants are thinking about what sorts of salts they're using in their, in their dishes, and this has sort of trickled down to mainstream America. So... You know, instead of just buying normal table salt, you're going to the store and you find different sea salts. You can find pink Himalayan salt. You can find these flaky salts like Jacobson salt makes, all these different varieties. And I dare say, at the risk of being a, a little too much given this issue, like there are some very elemental aspects mm-hmm. to this story I did not know before I read this. All the different sort of components that go into different types of salt that really radically, it sounds like, change the taste, the texture, etc. Help us understand that. It's like time traveling back to your high school chemistry class. <laughs> you know, totally. everyone knows... Everyone knows salt is sodium chloride, but then there are other trace minerals in there. There's potassium, there's calcium, there's magnesium. And basically, if you boil some of these out or evaporate some of these out, you'll get a different taste to the salt, even sometimes a different texture entirely. So even at, at Jacobson's facility, you know, he'll boil out calcium when he first pumps the water in from the bay. And then later on, there's this very slow evaporation of magnesium, and then you end up with these kind of chunkier flakes, these, these wider flakes of salt that are really briny to the taste in a way that, you know, would strike you very, very differently compared to, I don't know, the table salt you'd, 
you find at a diner, say. Well, and what's interesting is pursuit of kind of refining the taste, right? Because he did talk about mm-hmm. the waters in the bay and all the oysters there, right? And that had an impact, a positive one. Right, right. Yeah, there's, there's this great story he told me when he was first starting out. He's just driving around in the Subaru Forester <laughs> with, his, with his very good Portuguese water dog, Luca, filling up a bunch of buckets full of water. And then he, he lands on this spot in Neatart's Bay because there are thousands of oysters in the bay that are already pulling stuff like calcium out of the seawater because this is how oysters make their shells. Uh, and, and that in itself begins refining the seawater, so to speak, so that once Jacobson's facility starts pumping it in, you already kind of have uh, seawater that's well on its way to becoming really good salt. The snack of the future. Andrew Zaleski, right. we'll have to check it out. Thank you so Jason much. Great story. will become a salt snob. So if you mention chemistry, for many of us, what comes to mind is the memorization and understanding of the periodic table of elements. You remember that, don't you? I do. What I remember is a really hard <laughs> class that I had trouble with. But Peter Coy normally talks with us all about economics. He's got a little bit of a different take, but only slightly different. He's here with us in New York City. That's right, because really it is an economics story. I, of course, I think of everything as an economic story, but reasonably speaking, the economy is built on the periodic table. I mean, we live with carbon, silicon, nitrogen, phosphorus. I could go on and on. And after all, everything in the world is built from these elements in the periodic table. And we think of the world sometimes as being virtual these days. We think of software, patents, copyrights. Something in the cloud, ideas, the right. means. It's, it's like the value is virtual, but in fact, And that's true. I won't deny that all these things are important, but what are they built on? What does software run on? Computers. What are computers? Hardware. Hardware is made from the elements of the periodic table. Well, this is what's interesting, and what I think is fascinating about this issue. So here we are celebrating the 150th anniversary of the periodic table, right? And your point is that it's even more important than ever before. It maybe seems and feels so yesterday, but it's really relevant and really important. Yeah, and what fascinated me as I was working on this story is how the periodic table has been exploited. So as technology advances, we get more and more, we, I mean the, the experts, not I, but get more and more precise about formulations, finding exactly the right pinch of this, pinch of that. Semiconductors, for example, right. integrated circuits have many, many layers, and each one is a different composition, tweaked for optimal performance. So you have arsenic. You know, we think of arsenic as poison. That's gallium arsenide, which is used for high-speed chips. Um, Silicon is doped with various elements. And so as society advances, as technology advances, we use more and more of the elements in the periodic table. And this project is fascinating because we list all of them. And there's a few at at the far end, you know, the high, high numbers which really have no uses, but the the majority are actually being used in some crazy way or another. Well, and one of the examples that you give that really sort of brought it home for me was the cell phone. And you think Mm -hmm. about the evolution of that piece of machinery, and one of the ways you can track the evolution is the number of different elements, ultimately, that are used in the modern cell phone, especially versus how they were originally conceived. I believe it's 75. Uh, Yeah, I mean, we're talking about some that are almost invisible in terms of how much they're being used. 
but I all have another an analogy which I'll claim credit for, even though maybe somebody else <laughs> also had the idea. The human body. Okay. The human body, in a sense, was our first factory. It 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 takes in inputs and produces outputs, right. and and the human body, uh, and not just human body, but evolution of all the different species over millions and billions of years has found ways to take elements from the environment, from the water, from the sky, from the gland, and incorporate them into our own flesh. And uh, there are some exotic examples, like in the human eye, the, the elements mm -hmm. being used in the parts of the bones, you know, the brain. Um, and so what we're doing as a technological society is sort of duplicating and going beyond what evolution has done for our own bodies. I also think what's interesting, and as you mentioned the cell phone example, and there's so many different elements within the cell phone, this whole idea of where we are in society today, that it takes so much to build this great product that we all use yeah. you know, all the time, but that also creates this supply chain right. that you know, kind of reminds us of how we are so interconnected. It's a story a of world. globalization. Right? That's actually why, uh, going back to what the original question, why are we writing about this in Business Week? Well, we write about globalization all the time. Can't think of a better example of globalization than this. These war-torn countries in Africa mm -hmm. are incredibly vital sources of some of the elements that are used in cell phone products and so on. So you, you, we think about conflict diamonds, but there are conflict minerals as well. And uh, we have this fight now over the rare earth right. elements. Right. Uh, so Part of the trade war, ultimately, in yeah. some form or fashion, at right. least in the mm -hmm. tensions between the U.S. and China and maybe China and the rest of the world. So China is the world's leading producer of rare earths, which are not actually rare in terms of their percentage of composition of the Earth's crust, but they are increasingly hard to get. And expensive to produce, right, and pull yeah. out. Yeah, there's trying to process them. So China... Um, actually imports raw rare earths from places like Australia and the U.S., processes them and then ships them out. And the uh, Trump administration is understanding that this is kind of an iffy situation as China becomes more and more of an adversary. It's trying to reopen some processing facilities in the U.S. so the U.S. will be less dependent. I have to say, I'm just noticing your tie. Oh! <laughs> You mean this? This is, right. The periodic yeah. table of elements. What's interesting, Peter, and I always think about this, especially when we do an issue that's so devoted yeah. to one specific issue yeah. for the most part. You know, you were tasked with a mission. What did you first think about when you were said, okay, Peter, we want you to write about it? Well, I actually thought, ah, they had the same idea I had because a couple of years ago I was going to write an article about this. There's a guy named Thomas Gradle from Yale who has worked on exactly this question of the uh, scarcity of critical elements mm -hmm. and has done some of the research on this. I was gonna do an article about it years ago and I kind of just didn't happen. So then when they announced they wanted to do this project, I said, oh, I'm on board, I right. love this idea, I'm totally in favor. So Peter, let's go back to the world of economics, your sort of day-to-day -day yeah. beat. It's a complicated time, to, to say the least. What did this teach you about maybe some of what we may see in the near future? What are the economic levers that ultimately may be pulled through the periodic table? I go back to the globalization theme. Globalization is under threat, as we know, all over the world. Countries are pulling apart. Chimerica, 
China and, uh, and America used to be so interwoven that uh, they came up with this term that almost like a single economy. Mm. And now under Trump, but it's not just Trump, it's, it's, there are underlying forces that go beyond just this president. There's a tension that they're pulling apart. So how does that work itself out? Um, do we some, each country is gonna compete for resources, which is not exactly the first time in history this has happened. And it can actually result in military conflict. Right. It right. has in the past. Right, restrict resources from one country puts them in a difficult position, right? And can lead to a war. Well, World War II, World War I, each of them had natural resources as one of the fighting points. Uh, Germany, with its philosophy of Lebensraum, you know, living room, was partly about how Germany felt vulnerable because it didn't control enough raw materials itself. It had coal, but not much else. So it wanted to go into Eastern Europe, Poland, and so on, and right. grab some of those. Well, and I don't think it's too much of a leap to think back to the G7 meeting, where mm -hmm. certainly the chemistry, shall we say, was mm -hmm. a little bit different maybe from, from previous meetings. But when you think about what those world leaders are trying to tackle, be it climate change, be it resource scarcity, be it all of these different uh, things where there aren't any clear agreements, this really is at the heart of almost everything we're talking about. And you know, it's, a, it's interesting too, uh, talk about climate change. I didn't even mention that before, but some of these elements that are so vital for things like uh, new batteries and uh, wind turbines, solar panels, are some of the elements that are actually hard to get, and in some cases uh, polluting to produce. So you have this tension here that you want, the, we're gonna to come to a world where we're gonna be having a collision between the wants and the needs. Well, and that's kind of, I feel like, the dark side of, you know, maybe limitations to some of the elements that are out there. The lighter side, and I love that you go into this a little bit, is about something like hydrogen that might ultimately be, you know, the renewable energy that kind of answers so many different problems or, or questions that are out there. I, I love that you kind of go there because I yeah. feel like there's so much in that table of elements that we still maybe have yet to discover, right? and really kind of max out. Hydrogen is a fun one because it's the most abundant element in the universe. It's the simplest, right. you know, just one proton, one electron. And it can be the ultimate clean energy carrier. And that's Peter Coit. We both love that guy in part yes. because he's such an affable little nerd in some ways, right? I yeah. mean, he brings us the world of economics normally, but he was one of the people, he really was setting the scene for this whole special issue and he's just also he's just so smart he's just so smart he's been thinking about though this aspect of the elements and you know how much it uh, really is involved in our world today and even more so than when the table was first created so it's a must read no doubt about it and that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast thanks for joining us I'm Carol Masser and I'm Jason Kelly be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week radio live Monday through Friday if you're in your car hanging around starting at 2 p.m wall street time can't catch the show live we'll get the daily podcast for the ride home wherever you download your podcast you can also get this week's edition of the magazine a special one on newsstands now this is bloomberg <laughs>